0: Welcome to Square One, powered by Fintech TV. Today, we dove into the world of checkout. Everybody's familiar with checkout. It's the last step in the purchase process when you're buying something, whether in person or online. But a less known fact is that purchase process drop-off is a $10 trillion problem for businesses worldwide. And checkout software is not nearly as easy of a problem as meets the eye. So this week, I chatted with my friend Ryan Bresla, founder and CEO of Bolt. Bolt has created a full checkout operating system to help merchants unify and shoppers go through checkout. In this episode, we unpacked a lot of the network effects that Bolt is now going to be able to take advantage of. Over the last 18 months, Bolt has grown its valuation 18x to $6 billion, and with 10 million shoppers on their platform, the company has hit escape velocity to reach the next level of growth. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on today. It's great to be here, Ramin. Yeah, Ryan, excited to have you on today. You know, we're going to go deep into what you're building at Bolt, um, as well as how you're building the company. It's it's There's a lot of unique elements you've incorporated. Uh, but before we do that, for the sake of our audience, I want to take a step back. You know, you as a person are, are super unique. You know, I've, I've gotten to know this about you, but you've actually built two multi-billion dollar companies, you know, by the age of 27. I want to start there, right? Give us a little bit more about your background and, and how that came to be.
1: So I grew up in South Florida, and I like to say my first experience with payments and checkout was bagging groceries. Worked at a grocery store for three years, and so a lot of people get very frustrated checking out. I also say that was one of the experiences that taught me the most about the spectrum of humanity and personas and people. Um, I wouldn't trade that for anything, and then I started Um, like many techies building websites and web apps um, as a way to make more than $6 an hour. And, uh, you know, ended up getting quite into that. And I'd say that was a, that was a really interesting experience because that's when I started working with clients. So you're not just their technical advisor. At that point, you're also their business advisor. And you start to see what businesses work and what businesses don't and why. And so that, like, really elevated my chops on business acumen in addition to understanding e-commerce better um, as an industry. And I uh, just, you know, came out to the Bay Area for school, started the Stanford Bitcoin group with some friends in early 2013. I was really into crypto. And so, you know, just the progression of working hard and following different passions and, um, you know, led to some um, interesting projects thus far.
0: So the company you run by day is a company called Bolt. We're gonna dive into exactly, you know, what you're building um, in a lot of the conversation, but let's broad but broadly you're solving the problem of customer checkout, right? And I want to take a step back and just talk a little bit about the context and the history of checkout, maybe give us a better sense of the landscape, you know, checkout over the past, you know, maybe 20, 30 years and, and where we are today. So the
1: most notable thing in the history of checkout is Amazon which created one-click checkout in 1999. And, you know, Amazon is amazing because, you know, they have a network of shoppers, of data, of technology scale, but it's all available on only on one domain, right, which is Amazon.com. They made their web services available in a democratized way. But as far as the shoppers and the data are concerned, it's only on one site. And so... I asked the question, you know, why isn't there a network around shoppers and checkout? Why isn't there a one-click network for the rest of the websites, whereby if you checked out anywhere and you create an account, you know, it wasn't uh, some siloed user database where that information is stored. It's also shared across a global network. And so I couldn't get a straight answer to that question. And there's a lot of noise in this space. And so I'm like, okay, well, someone's got to do this. And so someone's got to build checkout and solve that problem. And someone's got to build the network on top of checkout. And so that idea I had in around 2015 and uh, decided, you know, why not me? Let's give it a shot.
0: Well, the interesting thing is, is so there's, there's kind of Amazon in that equation, but even if you fast forward it down the line and you kind of look at the different checkout solutions on the market, you know, you take kind of mold out of the picture. I think it's it, basically these solutions fall in one of three buckets, right? So you've either got kind of like a hosted small and medium sized business platform. You know, what most comes to mind for folks is probably Shopify. Um, you've all the way on the other side of the spectrum, you've got these kind of like very probably over the top overkill enterprise platforms required for, for bigger brands where there's customization. And then you've got open source platforms, right? Which, which kind of have a little bit of, of flair and agility but also have their, their own issues. Maybe, maybe you can help us understand, you know, kind of beyond the Amazon problem which I think probably opened the gate, you know, to this world of possibility. There have been those three buckets then of solutions that have come out what are the challenges with those types of platforms today?
1: Well, they all have an important role. I'll say a, a Shopify aims to bring that tech scale and holistic approach, but it's, it's all an end-to-end platform. And so if you want the advantages of a Shopify, you have to use Shopify for almost everything. Whereas I believe that the network in and of itself should have the thinnest core possible. And so we built the network and the platform all around checkout where merchants can use their own front end they could use their own back end and order management system they could use any tool with bolt and so we have a we have thousands of features and integrations that you can bolt on to work with bolt you can even keep your entire existing checkout flow and just bolt on the network components Um, so you know, Amazon is all the advantages on one domain, Amazon.com. Shopify is all the network scale advantages, but on an end-to-end platform. And then, you know, the third wave of decentralization and democratization, which I believe in as a theme across all industries, is a network, but just over a thin core of accounts and checkout.
0: Yep. And, and maybe to help folks understand, because there's, there's kind of two elements of checkout, Right. And so there's kind of top of the funnel and, and bottom of the funnel. So um, if you think about you know, what's going on in kind of top of the funnel, um, you know, the solutions here are kind of notwithstanding their limitations are actually they do a pretty good job at, at the top of the funnel, right? Um, but the bottom of the funnel hasn't been super effectively cracked yet. Maybe you can define for us what top of the funnel functionality is, what does the bottom of the funnel functionality mean? And why that bottom of the funnel hasn't been as cracked effectively yet.
1: Yeah, well, the real players in the top of the funnel are the biggest players in Silicon Valley, right? It's Facebook, and Google, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's about it. And all of the other entities that they own and, you know, maybe Twitter. And so, you know, we're, we're not going to compete with Google or Facebook, right? And so the cost per click has, you know, gone up consistently every year there's more and more companies trying to compete for the same amount of eyeballs, right? And so the cost to acquire users through these channels only goes up. And so instead, you know, we took a look at the bottom of fun, which is you've paid all this money to get somebody to your site and interested in your product. And they start clicking around and now they're interested, right? And they click checkout. And so after you click checkout, 70% of shoppers fall off after that step. Yeah. Because of the friction due to checkouts, the primary cost. And so there's no company dedicated to the bottom of funnel holistically, right? There are a bunch of tools, but the tools are super fragmented and it becomes really hard to maintain your checkout stack. Um, and so, you know, we clean all that up as a holistic platform. We're the only company at scale that does one click checkout holistically that pieces everything together. And you know, there's so much more, right? Once a customer is converted, what about their post-purchase experience? What about their loyalty? What about referrals? What about all of these things that right now are super clunky, so clunky that your your typically e commerce merchant won't even touch it or try to do it well. Um, What if you have one platform that takes care of and optimizes everything after intent to purchase? And that is bold.
0: So you, you set a stat in that last response that I want to double click into um, because you can intuitively hear it, but I don't think you, I don't think it's as intuitive to actually understand the scope or the scale of the problem. So you said, you know, 70% of folks, you know, drop off, right? So I think conceptually, everybody listening understands because we've been through it with personal experience. You go online, you're checking out, you know, maybe it's a, it's a subpar checkout experience. You kind of leave that item in the cart, you know, you walk away. Uh, but the actual cost of that problem, when you aggregate it across all retailers, all businesses, I think in the U.S. alone, you've told me previously, is north of like a trillion dollars or so. Give, it, give us a sense of, you know, A, is that accurate, but, but B, probably more importantly, what is, what is the scale of this, you know, conceptually seemingly very small problem, but kind of in aggregate, you know, for, for retailers and online brands?
1: Yeah, so there's over a trillion dollars roughly in abandoned checkouts in the U.S. every year. There's over 10 trillion dollars globally in abandoned checkouts, many countries of which have it far worse than we have here. Um, And so there's, you know, I like to say there's no bigger problem on the Internet than checkout. And people ask, like, how did I come up with this idea um, it was thinking on a first principles basis. And so there are all these noisy competitors and customers in and around the checkout. But I knew as I'd worked with all these e-commerce customers with my agency. I, I knew they all had the same problem, right? Customers weren't converting, the software was terrible and there was no network. And so no matter who I talked to, all the reasons were, the reasons were, well, this can't be an opportunity. It's too big, and this must be a solved problem. And so I think sometimes the biggest opportunities in the world are the most obvious. And you just need to have the courage to say, okay, I'm going to go solve it.
0: Yep. So let, let's talk a little bit more about Bolt specifically, right? You've, you know, you've raised a couple hundred million dollars. You've reached escape velocity. I think by the time you know this episode is published... Uh, you guys just came out at a, at a new valuation at, at six billion dollars. Um, the cool part about that story to me is is not kind of the valuation of the rapid ascension, although you know that's that's really a, a huge hats off to the team. I think the cool part to me kind of conceptually when you think about the way you guys are attacking checkout and especially compared to other noise in the market like you alluded to, Ryan, is you guys are really thinking about it in a holistic sense. Right. So one of the things that I've learned about Bolt in our conversations is, you know, about your checkout OS, your checkout operating system, right? And really not thinking about it as a singular problem of let's solve one-click checkout. That may be what's visible to the end consumer, right? Which makes sense. Uh, but to the merchant and all your partners, you're actually providing, you know, a pretty upgraded operating system on how they go into the next wave, you know, of retail and and digital and online brands. So. Let's, maybe we can double click a ton into that, but as a first step, maybe you can talk about kind of checkout OS. um, You know, how do you think about it? How do merchants think about it? And then maybe we can break down some of those components of checkout OS.
1: Yeah, so when I first started fundraising for this, I went to the experts who had tried similar companies and they said, building a checkout placement is gonna be like mission impossible because every merchant works differently. And selling into retailers is going to be mission impossible because no one is going to trust you to replace their checkout. And both of those comments were uh, actually spot on. It just missed the mark in terms of the impossible part. They should have told me really hard, right? Not impossible. It's really hard. And so when you go through a checkout flow, that checkout is talking to your tax calculation engine, your shipping and fulfillment system, your couponing engineer discounts database, your gift card program, your payment processors, alternate payment methods, and payment providers, loyalty. You know, it's pulling the cart from your shopping cart. It's passing it to your order management system and syncing with your ERP, doing checks with your inventory management system at the beginning and end of checkout. And so it's talking to 30 or 40 distinct services for to run one checkout. And it all has to work flawlessly reliably, delightfully for the end customer. And so this is why a retailer's checkout, if they build it themselves, looks like it was built 10 years prior to the rest of the site is because this is a hard technical challenge for the Goliaths, like an Airbnb with you know multi-hundred person payments and checkout teams, let alone retailers where tech is not their expertise. And so we had to build a standard general use checkout that integrated with the whole ecosystem of tooling around transactions and so to get a sense of how tough this is you know google internally alphabet doesn't even have one checkout team every alphabet company has their own checkout team and is rebuilding their own implementation and so we had a you know took us one year to launch a whole year to build for our first merchant our second year we could launch three merchants our next year like 10. And so there's five years basically of my life and we had world-class engineers. We were very tech first, you know, five years of my life was just a grind, like building all the integrations, you know, thinking that you're going to, uh, are you going to be alive, raise enough money to last for the next three to six months. Um, and, you know, also operating in relative stealth because we didn't want people to know about what we were doing. And so like five, half a decade of my life was in that mode,
0: basically. And so when you take that kind of half a decade, right, and the technical plumbing and the foundation and everything you guys built, right, and you extract that up or abstract that up rather to check out OS, right, this kind of operating system, talk about that checkout OS a little bit more, talk about the components, right? And and how I, I think what's most interesting kind of from a investor or kind of a macro market perspective is really how to segment the, the signal and the noise, I'd say, in this space. So what I mean by that is there's a whole bevy of tools or, or kind of folks that are companies that are trying to solve one-click checkout that I think are really tools, right? They're like one-trick ponies. And then I think there's the signal, which is actually developing an actual platform, right? Upon which, yes, you, you know, as a consumer, you're solving one-click checkout, but you've got all of these other different components, which actually really make it you know, quite sticky. But, but more importantly, as you get further and further into each layer, you know, it's really a kind of it's a strategic software platform for merchants as opposed to, you know, just a tool to help customers check out.
1: Exactly. We think of ourselves, you know, the company that I most tried to emulate and I read everything was actually Salesforce hmm. because they built this interconnected platform that works with everything. And so for us, I was like, that's the company that's closest to what we're building. Even though the consumer and most people, it's one click checkout to the retailers. It's a real platform and operating system that has to work with their whole tool chain. And so, you know, it was really hard. And so we, every feature that we built had to um, waterfall and work across every version of our checkout and every you know e-commerce platform many of them don't even have apis mm. and so we have software bundles that have to get updated with every new feature and so we build something once it has to be built like 10 more times um and so it was a, a grind i mean you know we had a lot of people who were like you know, who left the company which were some of the most painful days is, are like, this is, it's not gonna be possible to scale. There's no way. And I was like, yeah, it, it's gonna be really hard to scale but not impossible. And we just had to get better every month, more automation, better software, cleaner workflows um, and, and grind away at making checkout scalable. And so today I feel really confident you know, when I see other competitors and folks popping up, it's like, this is a four or five year undertaking to get to parity to where we are today. And by the time anyone gets there, we're, gonna, we're, we're growing exponentially. And so that's what's fun. You know, that's the upside of building a technically complex product. The downside is, you know, the first years are going to be brutal to convince people to give you money, and, uh, and to convince people to stay at your company grinding. But then once you kind of cross the chasm and have software that scales and have a sales motion that scales, you can grow really fast and uh, start to really kick butt.
0: I like the Salesforce analogy a lot, actually, because there's there's this interesting kind of concept in tech. I know you're familiar with it, but it's it's kind of this idea of, you either have products that historically have been systems of record, right? Meaning you store actual data, et cetera, in them, or you've had products that are systems of engagement, right? Meaning you can do something with them, you can interact with them, et cetera. But we've kind of moved to a, a 2.0 world in a lot of software where the system of record component of the product and the system of engagement component of the product really create you know something interesting, what's, what's called a system of intelligence, right? And so the idea is that you're engaging with this product you're inputting a bunch of data, and then that data is feeding back recommendations for better engagement, right? And so it's kind of, it's a, it's a different way to kind of think about network effects and virtuous cycles, right? Um, I laid that out, and, and I think Salesforce has actually done that really, really well, which is why you start to see products like Einstein and so on and so forth start to come out, which is this idea of, hey, we've input all this sales data, but how might we actually recommend and assist you know, sales reps in, in their day-to-day? I think there's a very similar parallel here when you think about Bolt, which is the more merchants, the more customers you have, it drives up the future value of the platform, right? For new merchants and the new customers that are coming on board. So there's kind of this virtuous cycle or, or network effect of sorts. Maybe maybe break that down, you know, A, I'm interested in if that framing even resonates, that might be completely off, um, but I'm interested in your reaction to that framing. And then secondarily, you know, regardless of if it resonates or not, Uh, I am interested in you kind of breaking down that virtuous cycle or or network effect in in Bolt's business and and the implications of it.
1: Yeah, we are sitting on what we believe to be one of the biggest network effects, uh, you know, in the history, because the more merchants that join our network, the more shoppers that join, right? Because all their shoppers become our shoppers, which means our conversion starts to go up, right? And that means more merchants sign up. And then we also we launched a product called remote checkout which works with publishers who have marketplaces and that benefit that product benefits from more merchants that sign up um, more publishers can have access to these merchants and uh spawn a remote checkout that's linked to that merchant and so we have this you know triple network effect and then we're getting data from each side right and so that's why like we've you know, we say we've grown in valuation 18X in 18 months. Well, it was, you know, five, six years of where I couldn't quote stats like that, right? And now the network effect is taking off and it's just getting started. We have now tens of millions of shoppers on the network and, um, you know, now tens of billions in uh, GMV, a gross merchandise volume, signed up onto the platform onboarding in the next 12 months. And so... Yeah, it's, you know, a network effect is very hard to get started, but once it does get started, it obviously has a lot of power to it.
0: And, and what are the applications, Ryan, like at scale that you get excited about, right? So you've gotten to this point now where you solved the technical challenge. You have tens of billions of GMB that's running through, right? There's all sorts of kind of like insights or cuts or like product features, et cetera, that get to be built, right? I imagine this is probably the most fun time. You know, to be thinking about product at Bolt, right? Because you have enough scale where you can really start to do interesting things, but the business is not so mature. Um, you know, where, where kind of product innovation or speed or velocity of innovation starts to you know fall a little bit off a cliff. What are maybe you can give us some you know perspectives on what are what are some of the interesting kind of app scale applications you think about? You know, for you know for the next generation of of Bolt when you have such a strong central repository, you know, shoppers on the internet.
1: Yeah, there's so much that we're building right now. It's a lot of fun. All these things I had dreamed about seven years ago. I was like one day I hope to be able to start building these things. Now we're able to. And so I'll give you some examples. Um, social commerce is a really big theme. How do you um, enable checkout in offline remote locations, right? Not on the merchant site, but you know, in context of other applications. And... So that's a big thing we're focused on. And then the consumer, too, right? Right to date, we've been B2B or B2B to C, but direct consumer products that help them check out more quickly, track their orders from across the internet, track their loyalty, um, and you know, have membership and, and buyer protection and all of these types of things. So basically supercharging the shoppers online shopping experience and building towards that is another kind of big rock for us internally. And then international expansion, okay. you know, of, as a merchant, you should be able to just install one piece of checkout software and that checkout should be localized and personalized to any user anywhere all over the world. And so we're building that, we're building that too. And, you know, those are three areas of, of more that we're now, um, we're not focused on.
0: I think the last one is especially really interesting. We saw it, you know, with companies like HubSpot, etc., that have done this for marketing or sales of customized landing pages, right, based on where you are in the world, based on your user persona, you know, etc. So, I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting dynamics that, that start to flow out when you think about that hyper localization. Let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about you know some of the lessons learned growing a, a hyperscale business. You talked about earlier. You know, you guys have 18X the valuation in 18 months, you're at 6 billion today. Uh, but over the last week, few weeks, you, you made a really big announcement, which is you're the first tech unicorn that's moved to a four day work week. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit, but give some perspective on, on how you came up with the, with the idea and why you adopted it.
1: So culture has always been an enormous focus for us. Probably a year in, I started focusing on culture. I was grateful to have some great coaches like Matt Mochari, who's known for the Mochari method. I was one of his first students, really, um, or intensive students. And so, you know, I all we always had a culture doc that reflected the latest up-to-date thoughts on our culture and values. And um, we updated that, you know, we set up regular culture meetings where we reflect, hey, what went well culture-wise last week or last month and you know if we notice something didn't go well we had a philosophy where just don't make the same mistake twice right like your mistakes are going to teach you what you need to do to update your culture you know if if, uh, if morale got you know a little sour on a team we might realize that they weren't doing bi-weekly written feedback in the way that we advise and there were issues that weren't communicated to folks that could have been nipped in the bud Earlier, but grew and festered, and then people got upset. And so we would always be analyzing what's going right culturally, what's going wrong. And we finally published all those learnings onto a site called conscious.org. And we called it Conscious Culture because that is what, you know, it it encapsulates what it is so well, which is being conscious that we are building a business and we do need to execute. And we need to hold everyone to really high performance bars, but for those who are, you know, all in and executing and doing right by the company, we do right by them, right? And making sure they have time to really balance and reset and prioritize their well-being, and are treated equitably and fairly um, and in a welcomed work environment. And so it's very much a two-way street, which is, you know, we're, you give your company, you know, what's the company what's right. And we're going to do right by you. And it doesn't mean we coddle folks, right? We are very transparent about how folks are performing, but it always in a kind and caring way.
0: Yeah. And there's two axes. I like a lot about this idea. The first is the shift in measuring inputs versus outputs, right? So it's shifting the dial to really measure I think the unit that you believe is more valuable and, and really is, is more impactful and valuable in any company's trajectory, which is ultimately the results that you get you know, versus you know the amount of effort that's, that's put in. And then the second is shifting the style of work. So you reference actually a pretty interesting framing on Twitter, which is, I think you said, working like a lion, not a cow, right? And so maybe talk first about that inputs versus outputs kind of framework or the way to think about that. And then I want you to unpack that lion versus cow analogy
1: yeah so there i think there's a lot of confusion in startup culture or corporate culture all over the world the only thing that matters is outputs right that's it and so there's a lot of virtue signaling around inputs you know oh i'm doing this i'm following all these processes i'm a big believer in process i'm a big you know believer in details you know none of that actually matters, unless it's leading to an outcome. And so that virtue signaling around how you work actually stunts the growth of other employees who have a different way of working, right? So if you have a culture of people who are virtue signaling about process, well, the creative types may be stunted in terms of their potential in your organization, right? And we saw that early days of Bolt, we had a hyper-rational, super logical culture and um, the creativity wasn't flowing as much. And so, you know, you have to embrace everyone's unique way of working to the extent possible in your organization, kill any process that isn't absolutely required to scale and prioritize outcomes and results. And I can't tell you how important of a shift this has been to our organization, because um, you have some people who, you know, always have excuses around, you know, they're doing all these great things, but the results don't end up there at the end of the day. And you give them a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And then your organization has missed goals for two quarters, which you can't recover from. And so I wish somebody told me this advice four or five years ago. Because both would be, you know, who knows where we'd be by now. I think this is the biggest mistake we made, which was not prioritizing and holding people accountable to results. Yep.
0: yep. And talk a little bit about the, the lion and the cow kind of framing.
1: Yeah. When I show up to work, and this started with a personal realization, it, I was kind of a bit of a zombie. Like, i go through emotions. i take meetings I didn't want to take. And um, I wasn't fully present and engaged Some, in our feedback sessions. I'd again feedback that, hey, like, it seems like you weren't present. And, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. I wasn't present for that meeting. And I started asking why. And I realized I, you know, first off, you shouldn't do anything you don't want to do. <laughs> and so that doesn't mean don't, you know, you're not willing to do the, the small details to get to the outcome. Yeah. I'm always willing to do that. But I want to do things that count. And so I started prioritizing for myself, hey, I'm gonna just manage my time to, to just focus on the thing that I believe have the most impact. And then I was like, well, this shouldn't just apply to me. We started talking about that with the leadership team. And then I said everybody in the company is a leader and should be, you know, expected to perform and operate like this. Like you know if, 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 if someone, if an engineer on our team is dragged down in meetings, that could be accomplished asynchronously in writing for them to read at their own pace when they're ready, so they could focus for that day. That's a drag on the organization, and so we started we started putting in systems to reduce drag, reduce process, and prioritize presence and engagement while you're working. And to us, you know, that naturally led to a four-day work week because we'd rather be fully present, engaged, 100% in for four days. And then hundred percent restoring for the other three days.
0: And so that's, that's kind of what I'm hearing from that animal analogy of sorts, right. Which is basically like, if you think of a kind of like a nine to five job or running the motions, et cetera, you're really kind of working like a cow. Right. And I think what you're putting forth is basically, you know, if you look for speed or high impact, right. Or urgency, et cetera, you're kind of working like a lion, right. That's, that's kind of that balance.
1: Totally. I'd rather have somebody all in Working like a lion for two days than working like a cow or like a zombie for five days. Right. And so if I could get four days of people working like lions, I'm way ahead of the game compared to any other company or any other competitor where folks are working like cows for five. And my team is happier. Right. And they're, and they feel more accomplished. Because what I, what we found is most of our team were really passionate about their work. Like you don't join a company unless you're passionate about it. Yep. And then when you start doing the work, the work becomes the drag. And so we're like, how do we unleash that passion that people have day one at bolt and turn and, and fuel that with how we work instead of diminish that and dampen their fire?
0: Yeah, I like that a lot because I think I think like most things naturally, in tech, we think about things having half-lives, meaning you think of a company that's soared out of the gates and has you know, very, very high growth rate, and you kind of naturally put that, that growth rate has a half-life to it, and eventually it's going kind to of asymptote. Or you put that, you know, employees come out of the gate with a lot of energy, a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm, and naturally that's going to subside. And what I'm hearing you're saying is actually taking the inverse approach, which is saying that how do you actually take a lot of that momentum and create the opposite you know, type effect, which is you don't eventually kind of plateau and asymptote with the half-life of growth, passion, enthusiasm, et cetera, but where do you make small design or system changes to actually create inflection points or exponential growth?
1: Absolutely, and I don't think this is something that you can outsource to a head of people, yep. right? This starts at the CEO level, yep. Um. You know, Amazon and Netflix, I've probably learned more from those two companies than any other company on planet Earth, right? They know how to execute. There's a lot to go learn from those companies on how they do that. The part that I disagree is, you know, they don't complement it with the wellness side and, you know, as uh, the mindfulness side. And I believe if you complement those two things together, you can create an environment where they're designed to cycle people out every three to four years. And I'm saying, how do we design a system where people are at Bolt and they're like, holy cow, I can't believe this is what work can be like. And I'm growing. And this person that we hired that was operating here is now operating here. And the company is benefiting from their growth. And so I deeply believe in our innate ability to grow, all of us. And I don't think enough of the world has that perspective, right? I got a lot of advisors who came to me and said, you know, you can't expect people to grow. Just meet them, you know, just expect them to be who they are. And I'm like, no, like we have to invest and believe in our people that they can grow. And some will, and I think many more will than most of those other people expect. Some won't, and that's okay. But you have to come to work with that belief and do everything in your power to enable that. your organization.
0: Yep. No, I I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um as we round out the conversation and and kind of final question, I want to end on a lighter note. Um you recently started getting much more active on Twitter. I think you've gone from like a couple thousand almost 30,000 followers in, in a few weeks, um, which is you know crazy fast growth. Um and and I'm curious why you started you know, posting more actively on Twitter, you know, what are you, what are you hoping to achieve from, from sharing those lessons in public? I, I have a sense that this is just the start of, of sharing lots of lessons in public.
1: Yeah, you know, I found in Silicon Valley, there was a lot of posturing based advice okay. where there's just a lot of advice that didn't make a lot of sense. It sounded like it was regurgitated, right? And so I had to figure all of this crap out myself. I had great advisors and whatnot who helped piece t- together, but I had to figure all like, we had a tough business to build. We didn't get lucky. We didn't get, you know, we raised, clawed our way, small, small raises the whole way until recently. Um, and so we didn't get lucky. And I had to learn things at a, at a very foundational level. Um, and so I'm like, I want to give back. And so I started advising companies, you know, informally, some formally. And founders were just coming back to me over and over again, because you know I was the one kind of person that they trusted. And then I found myself repeating the same things over and over again, and realizing that none of these founders were getting this advice from everyone else. They were like, "You've been, you know, I've been getting the opposite advice." And so, like, I want to start kind of spreading my truth to the world. I think the startup community can benefit from it. I think my brand and Bolt selfishly will benefit from it. So as per usual, when you give, you get, I've gotten so much from the little giving that I've done. I'm ready to, to give a whole lot more. And Ramin, uh, for everyone watching has played a huge role, has given me so much advice on this very topic. And so there's nobody um, I respect more in terms of their ability to give back and the way they approach that than, uh, than you, Ramin.
0: I I appreciate that. That's that's kind of kind to say, but we know that the the real power is in, in the quality of the insights. You know, Ryan, that that you're sharing this is this is awesome. This is a ton of fun. I'm I'm so glad you made the time to to come on and kind of share these lessons. Um, it's it's rare that you have businesses in markets that are truly a proxy for GDP and businesses building the infrastructure to enable that GDP. So I think you know the Bolt story, while it's had you know, a long kind of technical foundation and and certainly a rapid ascension, you know, as of late, I think we're starting just to see, you know, the inflection point of, of where the business can go. So looking forward to having you on back in the future uh, when Bolt is a $100 billion company and we'll, we'll talk about the next set of challenges then.
1: Let's do it.